This gospel message is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Hour, a ministry of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, a Reformed denomination that strives to be faithful to the Word of God and the historic confessions of the Reformed faith, also known as Calvinism. In love for our great God, we proclaim the Christian faith and life that is founded on God's sovereign particular grace. As God's Word is expounded, we pray that these messages are a blessing to you. Radio friends, today we are going to begin a series on the book of Nehemiah, the Old Testament book of the Bible called Nehemiah. The theme of this book of Holy Scripture is given in the second chapter, verse 10. We read, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite heard it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. The man Nehemiah is presented on the pages of Holy Scripture as the man who sought the welfare of God's people in church, a man who was committed to God's cause, God's people, God's church on earth, and lived seeking their welfare. And therefore he is given for our example, our encouragement, and our admonition. Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem in the year 445 B.C. and was part of the end of the Old Testament days after the return of the Jews from the Babylonian captivity, when the glories of David and Solomon and the world power that the Jews had once been were long in the past and God's covenant people were accounted the offscouring, the ragtag group in Palestine. God's people were characterized by weariness, loss of hope, many inroads of sin among them. God raises up now Nehemiah, his name means the Lord comforts, as the instrument to seek the welfare of God's people, to put things back into God-honoring God order, and to lead the people of God, and to establish them in the hope of Jesus Christ. Nehemiah is a man that God calls from a palace. He was the king's cupbearer. He was cupbearer to the king of Persia. He was in a luxurious, opulent, spacious, renowned, earthly splendor position. He had prestige, and he was trusted. Upon him comes the burden of the cause of God and God's people. Nehemiah was no prophet though he spoke the word of God forthrightly, firmly, and in holy passion. Nehemiah was no priest, though he lived his life in the presence of God, and devoted to God's church, and lived his life in prayer. Nehemiah was no king, though he had courage, and God used him to inspire his people to do good. Nehemiah was unknown in the world of his day. His contemporaries were Demosthenes and Plato, but Nehemiah is not known in the records of history. He was a man who never wore a crown, never conquered a country, and never composed a philosophy. Yet, by the grace of God, as a fruit of the redeeming grace of God in Christ, he served God in his generation. He sought the things of God and the honor of God. He was a great instrument of God for the good of the church. And so why do I choose this book of Nehemiah? For one reason. Commitment. 
that is so sorely and desperately needed, spiritual commitment to God's cause, the church, to God's name, to God's people, to God's honor. Nehemiah represents commitment to God's cause and truth and church and people. As I was saying, Nehemiah was a Jew of the dispersion. And he was, as I was saying, the cupbearer to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, who, therefore, Nehemiah lived in Shushan, the palace. He had a very prestigious position. We read in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2, that Hanani, one of his brothers, perhaps Nehemiah's physical brother, came, he and certain men of Judah, and Nehemiah asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, what was left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And after he had asked that question, his answer was most, the answer given was most distressing. We read, And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of that captivity, and he's referring there to the captivity of the people of God, that group that had returned to Jerusalem, the remnant that had was left of the captivity in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. The report was that great shame hung over the people of God. Poverty, oppression, lack of unity, and the lack of putting things in proper order. The walls were not rebuilt. The doors and the gates of the walls were not hung. Everything was strewn about in rubble and a picture of reproach and devastation. And all of this had its effect upon the soul of the people of God. And that news had the most powerful effect upon Nehemiah. We read, And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now picture that. The picture is not this. The question is asked, Well, how are things back in the old country where I grew up, where we grew up? How are things back there in the church? And the answer, Oh, not good at all. No preaching, no Sabbath observance, toleration of all types of ungodliness. Things are in a spiritual shambles. And then the response was not this. Oh, too bad. Oh, well, back to my life. I have a meeting at 2 o'clock on the schedule of the royal calendar for the year. And then at 3.30, there's going to be a garden party in the royal gardens. And then tonight, my friends and I are having dinner on the Tigris River near the Hanging Gardens. That was not Nehemiah's response. Nor was Nehemiah's response this when he heard the devastating news of God's church, that he would pull up the robes of self-righteousness and say, Oh, those moral lepers, I'll get on the phone and I'll talk 45 minutes with my friend about the liberalism in the church. No, that was not the response. The response was the man was shattered he wept, he fasted, he prayed. The love of his heart, the hope of his life, was in great need. If you don't love the church, if you don't love the people of God, and then you hear distressing news about the church, well, you will either shrug your shoulders and go back to your life, or you will rise up and say, For shame upon them. Let's pause 
Nehemiah was not asking for news because he was a disinterested spectator. He was not looking for something to gossip about, material to gossip over the coffee table. But deep veins of love for God's church and people had been deposited in his heart by grace. Why was that news so devastating to Nehemiah that Jerusalem was in shambles and the walls weren't built? Well, was it that he was a patriot? Was he a fifth columnist in Persia? Was he a zealot for Judah's national honor? The answer is no. The answer is found in what the walls of Jerusalem represented and the distressed people of Jerusalem, what they represented. The walls of Jerusalem are very significant. We read, for instance, in Psalm 48, Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. Walk around her, tell the towers thereof, mark ye well her bulwarks, consider her palaces. Or we read in Isaiah 26, In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. The walls represented the safety of God's people. The walls represented that which kept back the vicious hatred of those who sought their destruction. It represented her order. It represented that all was in place, that they were organized as the people of God upon the earth, that they were cared for. They represented the things of salvation, the things that God had unfolded to them, their spiritual defense. God's people were the ones who were given the truths of God's Word. Today, those walls represent the establishment and the growth of the Church of Jesus Christ. They represent the things of salvation. They represent those things that God has given to defend us from the inroads of sin and those things that God has given us to build up the Church in the true and holy faith. It represents the truth of God's Word, specifically the Reformed biblical truth, summed and confessed by faithful creeds. These are the stones. These are the walls of the church. It represents the marks of the church, the preaching of the gospel, the administration of sacraments, and the exercise of loving Christian discipline. It represents the communion of saints. It represents prayer and Bible study and church life. It represents well-ordered Christian families. How are the walls of Zion today. Nehemiah's soul sought the well-being of God's children. He desired that the walls be strong and not broken down. Look about. The walls are broken down around God's church in Zion. There's the denial of the Holy Scripture, denial of inspiration. The denial of inspiration in the theories of evolution taking over in the church, there's the removal of expository preaching. Instead of expository preaching from many a pulpit, there's the cheer-up and the smile message. There's the happy, clappy services. There is no longer a reverence for the living and the lovely God. There's minimal church attendance. There's the cancellation of Sunday evening services. There's the desire that religion ought to be what suits me and the desire to merge with this world. And what about ourselves? Is there within you a spirit of apathy and detachment 
concerning the well-being of God's glorious church? Do your children see that you are burdened in love for the cause of God on earth? Do you have commitment? Do you have compassion upon the needs of the church? What is the motivating force of your life? Are the bricks of God's truth being formed up as walls in your heart? Or are the truths of God like a brickyard after an explosion? Everything's scattered around. There's no structure in your mind. You don't care about the truths of God's word except perhaps occasionally to pick up a brick of truth, of God's truth, and fling it at somebody. Nehemiah was burdened. He was burdened because he wanted the walls of truth and godliness to be built up around God's church. And so it drove him to his knees. In the rest of the first chapter, we read of Nehemiah's passionate prayer. There are things that stand out about this prayer. It was steeped in the scripture. Nehemiah drew from Moses and from Solomon and from David and from Daniel and from Ezra. He shows that his prayer is formed out of an intimate knowledge of the holy scriptures. Oh, how applicable to today. Let's understand that prayer must not be a route repetition, but the language and the attitude and the reverence of prayer all flow from acquaintance with the word of God. Nehemiah's prayer, if you would read it, well, you'll find it to be intense and sincere. Nehemiah was committed to prayer. He went on persistently for three months. He goes on praying to God concerning this need. Let's look very briefly at a few elements of his prayer. First of all, in his prayer, Nehemiah looked up to God in dependence. Verses 5 and 6 of the first chapter of Nehemiah. I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible, that is majestic God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant. He's praying out of a new principle, the new principle of grace. He's humbled before God. To him God was and is great. He is the God of covenant mercy. And Nehemiah said, I am utterly dependent upon thee. Secondly, his prayer not only was, look, was looking up to God in dependence, but he looked to God in repentance. Verse 6, And confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my fathers have sinned. We have dealt corruptly against thee, and have not kept thy commandments, nor statutes, nor judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. He made no attempt at excuses. He made no clever attempt to distance himself. He did not say, Well, Lord, you really know that others are responsible for the state of the affairs of the church. I wasn't there. I can hardly be included. I'm not guilty. No, but he surveyed what his fathers had done, and he saw that there was one reason for it, sin. They had departed from the living God. And then he confessed, I'm just the same. I'm their offspring. Of myself I am no different. I am the same apostate sinner who by nature goes a whoring from God. And he centered there upon the omission of their sin, we have dealt corruptly against thee, 
we have not kept thy commandments. It's not only in what we did, but in what we failed to do, in which we have offended thee, O God. Here's our failure. It's our lack. It's what we have not done. And then, his prayer looked back in gratitude to God to encourage himself concerning the future. He said, verse 8, Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou hast commanded thy servant Moses, saying, and then he brings up God's promise to a repentant people. Nehemiah then, when he heard the news of the walls of Jerusalem devastated, and the spiritual shambles of the people of God turned to God in a prayer of dependence, repentance, and gratitude to God who would be faithful to His promises. Now this is very important for us today. Let's pause and consider some lessons that we can learn. First of all, this lesson, Behold the Direction of Nehemiah's life. What was the motivating force, or what is the motivating force in your life? What are you really concerned about? What do you want to see prosper? You didn't need to ask Nehemiah. It was very plain that the church of Jesus Christ held the center of his heart. God's cause, God's people, God's honor, God's Christ, the well-being of the cause of God on earth, and the well-being of those who confessed that cause, that was the center of this man's life. Is it yours? Is it mine? Nehemiah, remember, was the king's cupbearer. That means that he had climbed the ladder of success. Cupbearer to a king? That was recognized dignity. He wore fancy clothes. He was next in rank to princes. He had influence in the court in today's terms. He had the office on the 92nd floor of the Standard Oil Building. His name was on the door. He was a face and a force to be reckoned with. He had a social life which was the envy of many. He had friends in high places. He was a man of gifts and abilities. He was a man of force of character. He was driven around by a chauffeur. But his heart was not set in those things. His life was not wrapped up in those things that men count dear and important. His love was directed elsewhere. It was upon the things of God and of His Christ. It was upon the things of the church and His people. It was toward those things that His heart and His life moved. This is what mattered to Him. Did Zion prosper? Were the walls going up? Did the people of God live in unity and in truth and holiness? On his deathbed or on a day of woe, you would not cheer him up if you brought him the latest court gossip or the stock prices or the oil futures had doubled. This would not be his encouragement. But you would have to speak to him about the church and the affairs of the church. So the question is, what is the direction of your life? What counts for you? Home? Finance? Business? Things? Pleasure? Self? Or the house of God? 
Do you involve yourself in the church? Do you shoulder your responsibility? Do you value membership in a Bible-believing, true church? Do you use your talents to build up the walls of faith and truth? Or are earthly ambitions and wealth and fame the motivating force of your heart? That or are they the things of Jesus Christ? Young people, let me ask you, where are you headed? To what have you made your commitment, the commitment of your heart, toward yourself, toward pleasure, towards things, toward, towards drink, towards sex, toward finding men and women of the world who are so exciting? Are you afraid of being considered narrow-minded as a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you hang on by a thread to the church? Throw in your heart. Throw in your heart to the only cause that is glorious, the only cause that matters, the cause of God's church and truth on the earth. And then the second lesson is this. Behold this man's natural identity with God's people. Nehemiah thought corporately, or you can put it this way, Nehemiah thought covenantally. He did not think independently. This is the vital lesson that is needed today concerning the Church of Jesus Christ. We must not think independently. Nehemiah said, Both I and my fathers have sinned. Hear the prayer of thy servants. We must not think this way. Well, what are those guys doing of the church over there? What are those guys doing as elders and deacons? What are those what are the other people doing? What did the church do for me lately? The problem is this and this and well, if those problems weren't there, well then I'd be a part of it. Nehemiah did not think that way. He knew the covenant union of God's people. When he heard about the church, he thought this way, I'm part of the body of Jesus Christ. I'm part of it. When the body suffers, I suffer. When the body rejoices, I rejoice. We live in the world of individualism. Me, me. But that's not the way it must be in the church of Jesus Christ. It's not me, it's not my. But it's we. And it's our those guys, those elders, those deacons, those other people in the church, is us. We must be united as the body of the Lord in the truth. And finally, behold the God in whom Nehemiah believed. Nehemiah's God, as you read the first chapter of Nehemiah, was not a wannabe God, if only you will let him be God. But Nehemiah's God was the great and the universal sovereign, the God of heaven. Nehemiah's God was totally reliable. He kept covenant and mercy. 
Nehemiah's God was unutterably holy, who had no fellowship with sin. Nehemiah's God was compassionate and merciful to bring them back, even though we do not deserve it. Nehemiah's God was glorious in power. He had a strong hand to accomplish his will. Nehemiah's God was intimately near to him. He stood in the presence of God. There's the secret of the man. There's the secret of Nehemiah. It's really no secret. It's found in his God. He loved and he lived for the living God. And because he loved and he lived for the living God, the cause of God lay claim to his being and to his soul and to his heart. He sought the things of God's kingdom. Is that what lays claim to your heart? Let us pray. Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. Bless us as we begin this series of studies on the book of Nehemiah. May it be a great blessing to us. In Jesus' name do we pray. Amen. The Gospel message you have just heard was sponsored by the Protestant Reformed Churches through its radio program, The Reformed Witness Hour. We hope that you have been edified and encouraged by this message. If you would like more information about the Reformed faith or the Protestant Reformed churches, feel free to visit our website at reformedwitnesshour.org or email us at mail at reformedwitnesshour.org.